couple of side notes before we get into the, the sermon today. Um, we're going to make available online, uh, we'll probably email it out too, we'll email it out in a PDF form. You know, we've been talking about the, if you want to throw up maybe the first couple of slides, the, the, next, the next one there, we've been talking about this phrase, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, in all things, love, and we've been talking about that. There are some things that, that are not negotiable, you know, and, and they're just, they are. They're just, they're, they're, they're what's truth, they're what has to be truth, otherwise we're in a lot of trouble. And then there's those things that are non-essential, those things that, you know, you might have your opinion, and you might have your opinion, and I have the right opinion, and, and we all have our opinion, but it isn't something to, to, uh, to fight over. It's just, okay, well, we look at it a little bit differently. But in all things, we're supposed to walk in love. Whether someone agrees with the essentials, you know, there's, there's people that say, well, no, that, that can't be true. Well, okay, we, we don't uh, drive them out and stone them out on the uh, city, uh, uh, outskirts of the city. They may not teach, you know, they may not be a leader, they, they won't be a leader and they won't teach, but, you know, they, at this moment, that's where they're at. But, I've said all that to say this, some have asked me, what are the essentials? What are the essentials? What are those things that, that uh, we don't compromise on? And um, we've put them on the website. We've put them on the website. We're going to send out, um, probably by email this week, uh, a list of it. How many of you grew up in a denominational church? Good, many of you. Now, some of you have already memorized what we've sent out. What I've done is uh, put down the, the Nicene Creed. Remember, you've heard of the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. What those were were statements that the church made. The, the fathers of the church at that time were dealing with different types of heresy, uh, mainly what's called Gnosticism. You ever heard of Gnosticism? Gnosticism means there's a special secret understanding that only a few know and those are the only ones who can who could really understand the things of God it's it's a secret knowledge and you if you don't know the secret knowledge well then you're out of luck sorry because we're not going to tell you what the secret knowledge is you just have to know it okay and so they were they put out statements this is what we believe but da 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 and those are a good example of things that are essentials we believe in one God, God Father, His, uh, his I don't have it memorized. I grew up in a church that, Ricky, why don't you come up here and uh, quote that? Because Ricky knows it off the top of her head. I don't have it in front of me either. This was something I decided to talk about before, so I don't have the notes in front of me. But it's, we believe in God. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ lived this sinless life, died on the cross for us, and so on and so forth. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in, in the, uh, uh, the, the unified church, the universal church. Now, in the, both the, the Apostles' Creed and the, the Nicene Creed, it says the Catholic church. What that word Catholic really means is universal, one church, one big church. And that's the way it should have been, was one unified church, all believing what the only reason we have over 15,000 denominations on the earth today is because everybody disagrees with each other. Well... And it's usually over the non-essentials. It's over the non-essentials that people break fellowship and argue and get mad at each other. Because if it's, if it's the essentials they disagree on, well, then they're a cult. That's something completely different. So we're going to put those out, give those out, send those out to you. Just as an example of if you didn't grow up in a church like that, I didn't. I grew up in a church where we didn't, the, the, uh, the closest thing to any kind of litur liturgy was the doxology at the end of the service. But those things are important. Now, somebody said, oh, we should start saying them on a regular basis. Well, we will, but let's get some, let's get some knowledge under our belt first. Because it's one thing just to say something, but it's another thing to say it from a place of knowledge, from understanding. And that's where, that's where this is my opinion, that's where I believe liturgy loses its power is when you just say something to be, to be saying it each week but if you know what you're saying if you know what what you mean what what the the truth that god is portraying through what you're saying then it's powerful because you read those two creeds you speak them they are powerful this is what i believe 
Now, yesterday in Bulls, we had Bulls yesterday, we had a wonderful time, great discussion, but it was during that time that somebody made a statement, and they said, they said, well, I believe this, and they started just saying, blah, 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 and I was like, that's beautiful, because that's coming from their heart. That was, that's powerful when they can say, I believe this, and I just started mulling over, think, thinking about it a bit, and kind of mentioned it to the men yesterday, but I want, I want to just kind of throw it out here as, a, as a, something to think about for the year to come. I would like each one of us over this next year to write our creed. As individuals, not as a church, but as an individual, I believe this. And be able to write those things down and get those things into your heart so that when, when you have an opportunity to disbelieve or to doubt or whatever, you can say, no, here's what I believe and why. Okay? So I'm just throwing that out. We'll talk more about it in the future. But I just wanted to touch on those points to begin with. Amen? Amen. So this year we've been talking about doctrine. We talked about the authority of the Word of God. The authority of the Word of God means that it has the authority. It has, it is a a revelation of God from God. Last week we talked about, uh, lost the word, I have it in my notes. Somebody tell me. Inspiration. We, have the, we talk about the inspiration of the Word of God, that God inspired man to write it. It wasn't their idea. They didn't just write down their own thoughts or a histor- historical version of what happened. It was God inspiring them to write what they wrote. And so in that, we know that, it, that we can trust it as the Word of God, and he did it to, and in revelation of who he is, revealing himself to human beings. And so now this week, so we've talked about authority, we've talked about inspiration and revelation. Now, how do we know that the Bible that we have today, that what we have, what we're reading, how do we know it's what they wrote? That was 2,000 years ago. That's a bit of time for you math majors. It's a long time, 2,000 years. A lot can happen in 2,000 years. And we understand that men are, if you look at it from the, the best light, are, are errant. Men make mistakes. From the, from the other side of it, from the worst side of it is, some men are diabolical. People, people can do whatever they want to change. So how do we know that what we have today is inerrant. What, and, and what is inerrant? I'm going to have a definition for that right here. It is free from, in, from error. Free from error. It's infallible. Infallible is absolutely trustworthy or sure. An infallible rule. Unfailing in, if, in effectiveness or operation. Certain. An infallible remedy. The Bible in its entirety is God's Word. It's God's written Word to man, free of error in its original autographs, which means the original writings that were written, and then the first copies made, and wholly reliable in history and doctrine. Its divine inspiration has rendered the book infallible, incapable of teaching deception, and inerrant not liable to prove false or mistaken. Its inspiration is plenary, which means it extends to all parts alike. From Genesis to Revelation, it is inerrant. It is incapable of teaching deception. It is verbal, including the actual language form, and confluent, a product of two free agents, human and divine. God worked with man to write it down, and he had them write it down the way he meant it. I had a discussion, or I guess I could actually say it was an argument, a number of years ago, where somebody said, well, this was, you know, I'm reading this verse, and, and well, this couldn't have been God. And I went, stop. You can't do that. It's either all true, or none of it's true. It's either all accurate or none of it's accurate. 
And there's actually groups of people today that are, are going around and saying, well, let's, let's vote on what's actually accurate and what isn't. What's actually true and what isn't. Well, you start doing that, then to me, all of it is up for bids. It's either, and, and you know, here's where I'm going to be dogmatic. Here's where, you know, me as a Christian, I have to be dogmatic. Because if it's not all true, if it's not all accurate, then I can't trust any of it. And at that point, I can't put my trust in it. Which explains why people attack it. If they can prove or if they can show that the Bible is inaccurate or errant, then everything about Christianity melts away because this is our source. Okay? So it's plenary, which means, or I'm sorry, it's the product of two free agents. It is divine. Inspiration involves infallibility as, a, as an essential property. And infallibility, in turn, implies inerrancy. Because God is infallible, his word is inerrant. Because God is perfect, his word is perfect. Because if he wants us to know him, and if he wants us to know how to live for him, then we have to believe, we have to come to a realization that what he said to us and what was passed down to us is accurate. If not, we're in trouble. All right. How do we know the Bible we have today is even close to the original? How do we know it's trustworthy or accurate? If we don't have the originals, which we do not, how do we know what they, what they really said? Haven't copiers down through the centuries, and many of you have probably heard this at one point or another, haven't copiers down through the centuries inserted and deleted and embellished the documents so that the original message of the Bible has been obscured. Now many of you have probably heard this story, and I, I may, we may have to delete it out of the video, depending on the reaction of my wife and others in the room. <laughs> but maybe you've heard the story of the, uh, of the monks that were sitting and copying scriptures, and they were copying scriptures, and they were copying scriptures. And they brought in a new monk to, to be trained in on how to copy scriptures and how to, how to write all of that out. And they, they, the new monk was watching them do it. He says, well, how come he's copying the copy that he just made? And they said, well, you know, that's how we do it. We copy, we copy somebody else's. We copy it exactly. We, we, you know, we're very careful to make no mistakes. He said, well, shouldn't you really be copying the original? They said, well, the originals are so valuable, we keep them down in a vault in the basement. We don't want them to be damaged. He says, well, you really should. You should be copying the originals. He says, well, that's, that's a probably good thought. So the, the head monk, the oldest monk, went down in the basement to get the originals, uh, to bring them up. He thought, you know, that's a good idea. We should make copies of the original. And he's, he's down there for a long time. And he doesn't come back. And he doesn't come back. He doesn't come back and they're thinking, what in the world happened? So they go down there and they find him sprawled over the transcript, weeping. And they said, what's the matter? What's the matter? And he goes, it said celebrate. <laughs> Sorry. Phil, you're going to want to take that part out. Just do it then. Can I put the real answer in the notes? No. These questions are frequently asked to discredit the sources of information from which the Christian faith has come to us. So, we need to avoid three different errors. When we are going through this and, and looking at how we can trust what we, what we have written down as Scripture, we need to avoid these three errors. The first one is to the assumption that inspiration or infallibility of the documents with the in, intent of attempting to prove the inspiration or infallibi, infallibility of the documents do not say the Bible is inspired or infallible simply because it claims to be. That's circular thinking. We'd love to say that. The Bible says it's true. The Bible says it's accurate. The Bible says it's, uh, it's the Word of God. But it, just because it says it doesn't mean that it's so. It won't hold weight in a discussion with somebody who doesn't believe. 
that they are Scripture. We need to have something outside of that, and we do. We do have something outside of that that gives us that proof. Two, when considering the original documents, forget about the present form of your Bible and regard them as the the collection of ancient source documents that they are. This is the Bible that I'm using now. And what do I mean by that? This is the ESV, the English Standard Version. I used to be, if you've been here for the last 12 years, 13 years, I've always used the NIV. There's a reason I've switched, a couple different reasons. One is that the NIV over the last few years has changed some of the wording the way it was originally done. But also, it's a thought-by-thought translation. They, they got the idea of what the, what the original text said, and then they put it into an English version that you and I can understand. It was very readable. It was an easy way to read. It was wonderful. Because when I started out as a kid, I grew up in a church where if it wasn't King James, it was worthless. It had to be King James. Because that's the way God intended it to be, was the, you know, King James wrote it. Well, the problem is, unless, of course, you have the Spanish Bible, which was not written by King James, or the Filipino Bible, which was not written in the King James, so on and so forth. It's a translation. All, everything we have is a translation. The ESV is a word-for-word translation. It's very accurate. Another one, another very good one, is the NASB, the New American Standard uh, Bible. NASB. Excellent. It's, a, it's probably one of the best from people that have used it and you know, so on and so forth. The problem with that one is it doesn't flow real good when you, when you read it. And especially when I tried to use it about a month ago, I tried to try, because I thought, well, I'm going to switch everything over to NASB and use that, and I stumbled all over every note that I had written for that sermon. The ESV seems to be much smoother. It's a good, uh, accurate translation, um, but it's also readable and more readable for that. But there's all kinds of versions out there. There's all kinds of the Message Bible, the blah, blah, blah. There's all kinds of versions today in English language so we can't look at that and say well sure well this the NIV doesn't say the same thing as the NASB or the ESV well no they're translations of the original we have to go all the way back to the original documents and say are those accurate and there's ways to do that ways to prove that as we go along and the third error to it to avoid is don't start with the modern authorities and then move to the documents to see if the authorities were right. Begin with the documents themselves. If you've watched any kind of documentaries on TV about the Bible within the last 20 years, there's all kinds of disbelief out there. They go, oh, well... You know, that, you know, that wasn't true, and that really didn't happen, and this didn't happen this way. I used to actually watch those just for the fun of it, kind of as a, a humorous sidelight, because, you know, they were, well, I won't even get into them. But there was all kinds of things they would come up with. And like, How in the world did you get there? Just very interesting. So don't start with the, the uh, resident authorities or the resident experts and then go back let's go all the way back to the originals and start there and move forward so procedure for testing a document's validity in his book introduction to research in english literary history c standards sets forth three tests of reliability employed in general history that word and literary criticism. Now, this guy is not a theologian. He's not a Bible scholar. He studies books having to do with war, uh, with war and the history of war. So when he looks at ancient documents and he's writing on subjects with them, he has to make sure his documents are accurate. And this is how he does it. The first is bibliographical. The textual tradition from the original document to the copies and manuscripts of that document we possess today. Because there are no antiquitals. See, there's all kinds of big words. There's no antique, no old, old original texts of anything that we have. Anything over five, six hundred years old. 
So if we want to believe anything that those people say, whether they're a historian or whether they're a, a writer, a, a philosophical writer, and we'll look at those later, Plato, Socrates, those kinds of guys, or the Bible, we have to, to go back and look at the first copies that were made from that original. That's what he's saying is you have to look at those copies and make sure those copies were accurate. Two, internal evidence. What the document claims of itself, and we already said that's we're not going to do that, but you can use that as a source. And then third, external evidence. How the document squares or aligns itself with facts, dates, persons uh, from its own contemporary world. So did other people write the same thing as this author wrote or this copier wrote? Is this accurate? Is, does it run parallel with other works? Because if, if there are 20 other works that say this is the way the battle went, and the work that you're looking at says, nope, it was completely different, red flag. There's something wrong with this one. Or there's something wrong with the other 20. The, you know, we're looking at, at reality is there's something wrong with the one that's a discrepancy. So let's look at the Old Testament. For both the Old and the New Testament, the crucial question is not having any original copies or scraps of the original text can we reconstruct them well enough from the oldest manuscript evidence we do have so they give us a true, undistorted view of actual people, places, and events? So how did we get these copies? How did we get what we have today that we can look at? Well, it was written down by hand. It was before the printing press. A printing press would have been nice. Because you put it in the original, or you, you put the copy of the original, and everybody double-checks it, you know, a, a hundred times, and then you start pressing them out. And you make multiple copies. Well, they didn't have that back then. It wasn't until Gutenberg, which was awesome because Gutenberg got it into our hands, the common man's hands. That's when it, it you know, got out of the dark ages. We, we went very prolific. But before that, the only way you could have a copy of an original was somebody sat down and hand-wrote it word for word. Now, not just anyone got to do that. Not just anybody said, hey, I'll make a copy, and just sat down and started writing. Because they couldn't get the, the, the text that was so valuable. They couldn't get their hands on it. It had to be somebody who qualified as a scribe. Somebody who qualified as, as an expert because they wanted it done right. Because they, they looked at it as, this is the Word of God. We're not messing around here. We're not playing games. We, this is important to us. They looked at it as Scripture. And so there was criteria. You had to be an educated person. You had to be a believer. You had to have, you had to have a, uh, people had to trust you because what you, were, what you were writing down, they wanted to trust it. So it wasn't just anybody. You know, so when people make the claim, oh, well, you know, they changed it because they had an agenda. Well, no. These people who were chosen to be scribes were chosen because, hey, we're handling the Word of God. And we need an accurate copy to give to the next person. And so we're not going to screw around here. We're not going to mess with this. And this is very, and when, when we talk more about uh, how they actually translated it, you'll see how importantly they took it. The scribe was considered a professional person in antiquity. So the people were trained to copy documents. The task was usually undertaken by a devout Jew. The scribes believed they were dealing with the very word of God and were therefore extremely careful in copying. They did not just hastily write things down. The earliest complete copy of the Hebrew Old Testament dates from uh, circa 900 A.D. That's the full Bible. We have copies of other parts of it from earlier, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Many of those scribes, when they would write them down, they would sit down, they would pray for hours ahead of time, they would seek the Lord, they would then sit and start to write. If at any time they did make a mistake, they burned it. 
It was always looked at by other people. It wasn't just one guy's writing down, writing down, writing down, and then good, this one's good, file it. No, somebody else then took it and matched it. Yes, yes, yes. They, it was juried. They would, they would look at it over time. The Jewish scribes thought that it was so holy what they were writing, many of them, certain groups of them, when they would write it, they would write it, they would, they would purify themselves uh, ceremonially. And they would begin to write. And as they would write it, whenever they would come to the name of God, they would stop, they would go back, they would purify themselves again, they would, they would bathe, they would change their clothes, and they would come back, and then they would write the, word, the name of God. Then they would continue on, and the next time they came to the name of God, they would get up from the table, they would go, they would purify themselves again. This was not just somebody writing down a copy. This was somebody who was taking what they were doing extremely seriously and very meticulously writing it as accurately as they possibly could. During the early part of the, 20, or the 10th century, 916 A.D., there was a group of Jews named or called the Masoretes. These Jews were meticulous in their copying. The texts they had were all in capital letters and there was no punctuation or paragraphs. The Masoretes would copy Isaiah, for example, and when they were through, they would total up the number of letters. Then they would find the middle letter of the book. If it was not the same as the one they were copying, they would throw it away. All of the present copies of the Hebrew text which came from this period are in remarkable agreement. Comparisons of this text with the earlier Latin and Greek versions have also revealed careful copying and little deviation during the thousand years from 100 B.C. to 900 A.D. But until this last century, there was, a, there was very little or scant material written in Hebrew from, from antiquity, which could be compared to the Masoretic texts. But then what happened in the last century, in 1940s? Dead Sea Scrolls. How many went to the Dead Sea Scroll exhibit when it was here in the cities? Oh, you should have gone. <laughs> Pardon? You went in Israel. Oh, that's even better. Those are more holy. The ones that are in it, no. The Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, you've heard the story, were found by a Bedouin sheep herder, young boy. He was uh, walking through the desert. He was guarding his sheep. He took a stone. He threw it into a cave, and he heard something break. Went inside, found these clay uh, pots, clay jars, opened up, and there was a scroll inside. Took it to some authorities, figuring it was going to be valuable. It was valuable. But the, they didn't realize how valuable. It was uh, transcripts, copies of the original Hebrew Old Testament from 90, be, 90 years before Christ through... Uh, da, 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 da. I'm sorry. 150 B.C. to 70 A.D. They were, the last copies were probably written around 70 A.D. When the, when the Romans came into Israel and were taking over and were going to destroy Jerusalem. They hid all of these in the caves and they were forgotten by time until 1940. 1940s. The Dead Sea Scrolls include a complete copy of the book of Isaiah a fragmented copy of Isaiah of another fragmented copy of Isaiah containing much of Isaiah 38 the fragments of almost every other book in the Old Testament the only book not does anybody know what's not in the Dead Sea Scrolls Esther it's the only only book not having at least a portion that they found the books of Samuel, as in a tattered copy, were also found in also two complete chapters of the book of Habakkuk. In addition, there were a number of non-biblical scrolls related to a commune, how they lived their life there in Qumran. These, detail, or these materials dated around 100 B.C., so before Christ. The significance of the find, and particularly the copy of Isaiah, was recognized by Merrill F. Unger when he said, 
the complete document of Isaiah quite understandably created a sensation since it was the first major biblical manuscript of great antiquity ever to be recovered. Interest in it was especially keen since it antedates or it's predated every other copy that they've had by a thousand years. That's why this is so huge. This is the oldest. Not only the oldest, it was the oldest by a thousand years. So, the supreme value of these documents lies in the ability of the biblical scholars to compare them with the Masoretic text that they had from 900 A.D. If the, if the Dead Sea Scrolls match up or don't match up with the Masoretic text, then we can, not, they can say, well, there are discrepancies. There are problems with these documents. So what they did is they put them side by side and began to study them. If upon examination there were little or no textual changes in these Masoretic texts where the comparison uh, were possible, an assumption could then be made that the Masoretic scribes had probably just been, had been just as faithful in their copying of the other biblical texts which could be compared with the Qumran material. So what was learned? What did they find out? A comparison of the, of the manuscripts of Isaiah with the Masoretic text revealed them to be extremely close in accuracy to each other. A comparison of Isaiah 53 shows that in, in the whole chapter of Isaiah 53, there are only 17 letters that differ from the Masoretic text. In a thousand years, only 17 letters changed. Four are very minor differences. I'm sorry, ten of these were mere differences in spelling, like honor and honor, the English, the difference in spelling from one place to the next, and produce no change in the meaning at all. Four were very minor differences, such as the presence of a conjunction, like and, which are stylistic rather than substantive. The other three letters are for the Hebrew word for light. This word was added to the text by someone after they shall see in verse 11. Out of the 166 words in the chapter, only this one word is really in question, and it doesn't change the meaning of the text. We are told by biblical scholars that this is typical of the whole manuscript of Isaiah. When they studied it, they were absolutely astounded how accurate the Masoretic text was. In a thousand years. That's what's so amazing. If it was over one year, you go, okay, great, you know, they still, but over a thousand years, it only changed by 17 letters. And those don't matter. It's just spelling differences. Uh, you know, I'm sure there'll be differences in, well, honor. Honor is spelled different depending on where part of the world you come from. The right part of the world or the... So the conclusion is, in his book, Can I Trust My Bible, R. Laird Harris concluded, we can now be sure that copyists worked with great care and accuracy on the Old Testament, even back to 225 B.C. Indeed, it would be rash skepticism that would now deny that we have our Old Testament in a form very close to that used by Ezra. Do you know who Ezra was? He was the priest that reinstituted worship uh, uh, back in when they came out of Babylon, when the, when the Jews came back from Babylon from the um, captivity. So now the New Testament. That's the Old Testament. The New Testament, Greek manuscript evidence. There are more than 4,000 different ancient Greek manuscripts containing all or portions of the New Testament that have survived to our time. These are written on different materials. So, in 2,000 years, there are four, over 4,000 copies that have been written down from, ancient, or from the time it was written, the originals were written, until the Middle Ages, 900, 1,000 A.D., 
They were written on papyrus and parchment. You can read through that. I'm not going to go through that. You can look at that yourself. But some examples of that is the Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaitius. Or Sinaitius, I don't know, it's that word. Yep, Sinaiticus. There we go. These are two excellent parchment copies of the entire New Testament which date from the 4th century, 325 to 450 A.D. There are older parts, but they are fragments. Earlier still, fragments of papyrus contain copies and portions of the New Testament from 100 years to 200 years before that full copy of the Vaticanus and Synacticus. The outstanding ones are the Chester B.D. papyrus and the Bodmer papyrus. Look those up. Because I, I had written all of this, I had put everything in here, we had printed it, the whole thing, and I was going through it again this week, and I started looking up one of the other papyruses, and I'm going to give you some more information about it. Uh, it just has a, a short blip in here, but I thought, I want to look what this lo- looks like and what it had to say. I was absolutely astounded at the information about it, so I, I encourage you to look those up on your own and find out more information. So from from those five manuscripts alone, we can construct all of Luke, John, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. This is from less than 200 years after they were originally written. There are books that were written 200 years ago that we trust implicitly. We we have no problem that that they say what we believe they said back 200 years ago. So these are, the original, these are copies of the original from 200 years ago. Oldest fragments, perhaps the earliest piece of scripture surviving, is a fragment of a papyrus codex containing John 18, 31 through 33, and 37. It's called the Ryland papyrus, and dates from 130 AD, having been found in Egypt. And this is a picture of it. This is what I... This is that, the Ryland Papyrus. This scripture is, uh, this is what I looked up and I got some more information. And I'll get, we'll have this available too. We'll, we'll put these on the note. Pastor Greg is amazing. Everybody give him a big round of applause. He'll have these up online this week. And we'll also we'll do whatever else we have to do to get him into your hands. Uh, the study of ancient writing styles dated the fragment to the time of Hadrian, 117 to 138 BC. Within 20 years of the composition of the Greek autograph of the gospel by its author. So, John wrote the book of John somewhere between 90 AD and 110 AD. They're not sure exactly but somewhere between 90 A.D. and 110 A.D. That's when he actually penned it. This copy is from 117 to possibly 138. So at the farthest end, it's only 20 years after the original book of John was written. So within that period of time, the, the possibility that there could even be somebody who was alive that read the original letter and read this one could say, wait a second, that's not what it said. It's significant in that this copy was discovered in Egypt, so far from the site of its original composition, which was in either Ephesus or Antioch, which may also be evidence that the gospel had been around for quite a while, certainly enough time to have been disseminated among Christians in other parts of the Roman world. Such an early copy reduces the chance for errors in creep in, or to creep in due to uh, copy errors. This version may have been made directly from the original. Within 20 years, there's, it's, it stands to reason that the original was still in circulation or still available, and it was actually made from the original directly. 20 years. It was already in Egypt. It was traveling everywhere. They sent these copies everywhere. The gospel was being prolificated everywhere in the known world. 
And this is within 20 years of the original writing. The John Rylands fragment supports the evidence that the gospel was written in the lifetime of the disciples. The gospels were spread across the known world with a single, within a single generation. Since the common material of the day was papyrus, it allowed for a quick mass distribution along the Roman road system. <clears throat> Such a quick and widespread distribution would prevent myth and legend from developing being, developing being inserted into the text. With so many copies floating around, any one copy could be easily compared to another for accuracy. This was, and, and some of the people who were actually there during the events could actually be reading these copies and be giving either a thumbs up or a thumbs down to it. Such an early copy would reduce the chance for copy errors to be inserted in the next, in the next over time. With a copy made within one generation of the original autograph, the whole idea of errors being introduced from person to person as it is copied becomes an idea with no basis. These were copied. And they were copied from the originals. They were copied. And then people who had read the original read the, read the copy. And if it didn't make the, make the cut, it was burned. It was thrown away. These are accurate. The Ryland Papyrus was fo has forced the critics to place the fourth gospel back into the first century, abandoning their earlier assertion that it could not have been written uh, then by the Apostle John. And that was the argument against the book of John by skeptics. The manuscript evidence creates a bridge of papyrus and parchment fragments and copies of the New Testament stretching back to almost the end of the first century. So, versions, translations. In addition to the actual Greek manuscripts, there are more than a thousand copies and fragments of the New Testament in Syria, Coptic, Arminian, Gothic, Ethiopic, as well as 8,000 copies of the Latin Vulgate some of which date back almost to 384 to 400 A.D. Tons and tons and tons of documents that do not change. They all agree. They're not, there are not discrepancies in them. Furthermore, a further witness to the New Testament text is sourced in the thousands of quotations found throughout the writings of the church fathers, Leaders of the day who wrote down teachings, sermons, uh, things that they were hearing, they, the copies that they had seen. So other people were making writings at the exact same time, not copies of the original, but they were quoting it. They were using it in their sermons. They were using it just like I do on, a, on any given Sunday. It is something that gets used on a regular basis on, in their services. And so in their writings alone, within that first 100 to 400 years, um, it is observed that if all the New Testament manuscripts and versions mentioned were to, to disappear overnight, it would still be possible to reconstruct the entire New Testament with quotes from the church fathers with exception of 15 to 20 verses. Everything was written down in other ways, and those agree word for word. The evidence of the early existence of the New Testament writings is clear. The wealth of materials for the New Testament becomes even more significant when we compare it with other ancient documents which have been accepted without question. So you have the chart in your, in your notes. You can look at that. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but I want to just describe what this is saying. So the book of Matthew, his lifespan was from somewhere to about zero, the, you know, A.D. or B.C., A.D., from zero to 70 A.D. The events took, took time between or 4 B.C. and 30 A.D. 
the writings, the date of his writing, when he actually wrote his book, was somewhere between 50 and 75 years, years A.D. The earliest manuscript, that's called the, the earliest extent MS, is the earliest manuscript that we have, we, meaning the, the body, the, the church, or the, the scholars, is from 200 A.D. So, the elapse of the time from when it was written... From the, from the event of when it, Matthew actually saw it and when he wrote it down was less than 50 years. When he wrote it down and it was transmitted all over the body of Christ, all the different churches, there were people in those churches who were also there. So when they read his account, they could say, that's not how it happened. Or yeah, that's the way it happened. They were also eyewitnesses. So from the time it happened until the time he actually wrote it down, was 50 years, or less, yes, or less. From the time that it was written down, or from when it, was, when it happened, until it was actually, we have a manuscript, is less than 200 years. So in a very short time, which, which seems long to us as human beings, but in the, in the extent of scholarly uh, study, in the extent of, of historical writings, of manuscripts, it is a very short time. Gospel of Mark, 200, less than 200 years. Luke, less than 200 years. The Gospel of John, less than 100 years. And from the time that, or the, the earliest manuscript, it was, could be less than 20 years from when it was actually written down to our first visible copy that we have. Now, below Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, you start getting into a bunch of other people. Josephus, Tacticus, Suetonius, Pliny, Plutarch, Herodotus, so on. These are all historians. These are guys who wrote about things that were happening in the day. They were writing, they were coming up with information, and people still today, other historians today, trust these as accurate historical writings. They don't doubt them. They're not under question. I mean, if they're under question, they, they study them, they figure out, and they go, yes, they are acceptable. They were living about the same time, or shortly after, when Jesus actually did the things that he did. They're talking about the same events. They wrote them... About the same time John wrote his gospel. So that 120, 80, 95, 120, so on and so forth. The earliest copies, though, that we have of those writings are 1000 AD, 850 AD, so on and so forth. With some of them being over 700, 800 years after the event actually happened. And so, but they don't doubt those. The biblical are all under 200 years, we have copies of. All the other historical writings which people accept are over, over 700 to 900 years old. I also, and this will also be on the internet, on the Facebook and on uh, the, the website. I also then pulled off this morning copies of other historical and antiquitous Writings, Plato, Caesar, Aristotle, Homer's Iliad, and so forth. The Bible, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of copies. Do you know how many copies of, of the original, or copies from the original, of Plato's work we have? Oh, it's up there, isn't it? It's up there, seven. Caesar, 10. Aristotle, 49. The approximate time between the original and the copy of Plato is 1,200 years. The original to Caesar, the story about Caesar, 1,000 years. Aristotle, 1,400 years, and so on. Books that are never questioned, uh, writings that were not, are never questioned according to historical uh, studies. Are, have far less credibility, far less information, far less copies, and so on. So the conclusion is this. In his book, The Bible and Archaeology, Sir Frederick G. Kenyon 
former director and principal librarian of the British Museum, stated about the New Testament. The interval then between the dates of original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. To be a skeptical of the 27 documents in the New Testament and to say they are unreliable is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. For no documents of ancient period are as well attested as or well attested bibliographically as these in the New Testament. B.F. Westcott and F.J.A. Hort the creators of the New Testament in original Greek, also commented, if comparative trivialities such as changes of order, the insertion or omission of, a, of the article with proper names and the like are set aside, the works, in our opinion, still subject, still subject to doubt can hardly mount to more than a thousandth part of the whole New Testament. In other words, the small changes and variations in manuscript change no major doctrine. They do not affect Christianity in the least. The message is the same with or without the variations. We have the Word of God. This is trustworthy. This is historically accurate. Historically. Next week we're going to talk about how did we get the different Bible? How did we, how did we get the different books? Matthew, Mark, Luke, the Old Testament. How did they get, how, who decided that they got in here? But before we go there and looking into the future, here's the deal. This is accurate. This is trustworthy. This is what God intended us to read and to get information about him and about how to live our lives. So at that point then, we have a question to decide. Are you going to do what it says to do? Are you going to believe what it says is truth? And are you going to base your life? Are you going to do whatever it says, if this is accurate, since this is accurate, since it is the Word of God, since it is a revelation of who He is, we as human beings are responsible to it. That's how we're going to go into the next part of this year is looking at now, what does it say, and who does it say it about, and why. Next week we'll talk about some more interesting stuff, very, very interesting stuff, how we know, or how we got each book, but the bigger question is, what do we do with it now? Let's stand. Father, you're amazing. Absolutely amazing, Lord. Thank you that you made it trustworthy that we can trust this Bible, that we can trust your word to us. Father, with all of the attacks, with all of the doubt, with all of the, the, the things that are going on in this world, Lord, we need something to stand on. And Father, I thank you that you gave it to us. Father, I thank you that as we continue to study now, based upon your word, Lord, reveal to us more and more every day, you your Son, and the Holy Spirit. Who you are, who we are to you, and what your plan is for us. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.